This podcast contains absolutely no Paul Ellis. You have been warned. You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello, and welcome to Misbehaving. This is episode number 42, and we're recording on February 15th, 2015. I'm Mary Wilson, and I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Katie Brisky. We're on our own today, as Paul is away. He's had some severe weather and uh, just got his power on just a little bit ago, so uh, it's, it's all with me and Katie today. So how are you today, Katie? I am sad because I am Paulless. <laughs> um, I really like having Paul on the show. This feels very strange. We've we've become quite a trio in the few weeks that we've been doing this, so it, it feels a little weird. But uh, we shall soldier on, uh, nonetheless. Uh, I am cold. Um, it seems to be severe weather all over the place. So it's like minus forty here in Toronto, uh, and minus forty. It, I saw this today as where Celsius and Fahrenheit just shake hands and say, "Yeah, it's cold." Um, so for you Americans, yeah. it's minus 40. Um, otherwise, good. Slaving away on my third semester project for school and um, still prepping the promo of my own book coming out next month. Uh, how are you today, Mare? I'm good. I'm, I'm, we just released, uh, Elysian Press just released another new book oh. uh, just with the beginning of February called Innocent Blood by Luann Carroll. So I'm do a little plug. And there was our little bell. We need that, huh? Um, so we're we're excited about getting that out, and we're getting ready to have a big launch party tomorrow. So lots of fun things going on with that. That's awesome, and we hope you're all good as well, listeners. So as you know, each misbehaving show features a special guest from the literary world. It could be a writer, publisher, agent, editor, or anyone else connected with the world of publishing. And as per usual, as is our style here on Misbehaving, we have a very special guest. Shh. Be very quiet when hunting books in the library of a misbehaver. And that means it's time for something from the library of a misbehaver. So today we are discussing Sword by Amy Bai. And uh, sidebar, Amy is a friend of both Mare's and mine, so we're very pleased to have her. Sword is an epic fantasy, and I do mean epic. Uh, for over a thousand years, the kingdom of Larden has been at peace. Now, Kiali, the general's daughter, has never really believed in fairy stories. But one day, an old nursery rhyme begins to come true, naming her as Sword and her brother and best friend as Song and Crown, respectively, and they are the saviors of the kingdom. Now, when that ancient magic wakes, the future changes for everyone, and Kiali must find a way to master this magic her people have abandoned, or watch her world fall to a war older than the kingdom itself. And we were kind of buzzing about this right before we started recording. Uh, Mare, do you want to kick things off? Oh, absolutely. I loved this book. But then, you know, I'm a big fantasy buff anyway, but this just, just hooks you in right off the bat. And I loved these characters. Uh, just so many of the things that you love in fantasy were there, but with twists that were just so interesting and intriguing. I know. Uh, this really puts the epic in epic fantasy, both in uh, scale and scope. But what I really, really liked was a lot of the really personal connections between the characters. I just found that the dynamics and the relationships between them were so rich and so nuanced. Um, I especially loved, and forgive me, Amy, if I butcher anyone's name, 
Um, I loved the friendship between Kelly and Teresa. Teresa? That is close enough. Good enough. We're going to go with that then. I loved it because it is not exactly I love you so much, and yet sometimes I want to throttle you kind of friendship <laughs> that I think we all have in our lives. Well, we had those levels throughout almost every relationship yeah. in the book, and that's what was so, so intriguing. They just felt real. They just felt, you just went, and there were times you just wanted to go, oh, and hug them, you know? I know. Um, and magic and sword fights. Yeah, their their world just gets so torn apart. Your your heart bleeds for them, and you care about them. You care about them really quickly, and that's that's very well and very cleverly done. So before, so we can let her get a word in edgewise too. Before Let's we go ahead and over her. the author. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Amy Bye. Oh my God, no, it really. <laughs> It really is a pleasure to have Amy on the show. She was one of the first writers to welcome me to the writing community several years ago. Um, so it's a particular joy for me to be able to have her on Misbehaving. She's only had an open invitation for four years, so I'm so glad she's <laughs> finally accepted it through Katie. It's such a small world. It really it is. is. Anyway, yeah. Amy, welcome, welcome, welcome. So happy to have you on the show today. I'm so to be here you guys thanks so much for having me and i just i think it's so awesome that you guys know each other and that i knew you separately and then i was like oh my god they know each other yeah fun backstory on that so amy and i currently are both in the stone coast mfa in creative writing uh, which is run through the university of southern maine so we've been doing this for about a year i've known murph or mayor sorry getting my m's mixed up i've known mayor for a few months now um and it came up one day in conversation oh yeah i've got this podcast and I do it with my friend mayor and amy's just like i know her I was like, oh, well then. Um, so that is the origin story behind how this podcast came about. Um, but Amy, we are interested in your origin story. So how did you get into writing? Oh, my gosh. Uh, that It depends on how far back you want me to go. Let's go all the way back to um, the beginning. I could go with my sophomore year of college. All the way back. All right. All the way back to the beginning would be second grade. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, let's see, I was writing a serial action romance story when I was seven years old. I based it on my classmates, Brian and Charity. And one day I had no essay to read for class because I hadn't done my homework. And so I read that instead. And my teacher was so excited about it that she made me read every chapter once a week on Tuesdays for the next two months. So I just kept going with it. Um, and Brian and Charity, I think they got drowned they got shot at. They kissed on top of a mountain. They rode a dinosaur. And I'm pretty sure there was something about paragliding in there as well. The whole class listened to basically every episode I put out there. They were, poor Brian and Charity were totally horrified, but I, I was absolutely hooked. That's pretty awesome. So <laughs> I've been writing ever since. Yeah. As far as origin story goes, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty clever and fun and interesting origin story. I liked yours much better than mine. I think I'm going to steal it. <laughs> I wonder where Brian and Charity are now. Kind of. Do that too. Oh, dear. Of Truth and Mythery. Of Truth and Mythery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. Amy, please feel free to answer this. Writers don't need an education. They just need to write. Hmm. Well, I think writers definitely 
they need a solid foundation in grammar and sentence structure, and they need to have a broad vocabulary that they're confident about. So obviously, there's some education required there. In terms of a formal education in writing, I think it really depends on what you want to do with it. Um, I majored in creative writing in college. I'm halfway through an MFA in the most amazing writing program ever, the Stone Coast program. I was so lucky to get in, and as Katie said, that's where we met. Um, and these things, I would say they've improved my writing in huge ways. I am, I just, I really feel like I've come a really long way, especially in the last year in Stone Coast. But is, are these things necessary to write a good book? I don't really think so. Um, I know too many wonderful authors who didn't choose to get a degree in writing. I really think the only necessary education for a writer is to read good books, like a lot, a lot of good books, and to be willing to put in the time, obviously, and to fail very boldly. Yeah, I agree. So that's me. I agree with you, Amy. Um, I think it's one of those things where there's many ways up the mountain. Um, I agree with you. You do need the foundation, um, just kind of on the level of grammar and syntax, um, and definitely reading broadly. Um, but I think the rest of it, how you get there, is kind of what works for you. Like you, I, I like having the formal education, and I like drilling down very intensely into it, which is what Stone Coast does and what an MFA program will help you with. Uh, but that's kind of suited to my learning style. So if there's someone who's going to maybe learn the same things, but a different way by writing five books that maybe don't work, uh, power to them. I agree. Um, I don't have that formal writing education. My education was in theater arts, which is not, not really writing, except that the characters, I think, helped the creation of characters helps with my writing. So I'm really glad you don't think you need to have a creative writing degree because I sure don't. Well, I think the other thing, too, is just being open to all of the other experiences in your life. Because you're, you're coming from theater, Amir, and I actually come from history. And definitely the history has helped my writing. Because um, I feel like writing is actually very interdis interdisciplinary. I can say that word. Uh, you're just drawing on so many different fields. So having that one formal education, I, I don't know. Yeah, I would totally tend to agree. I actually, I minored in speech and theater. So I actually, um, when I first started out in college, I was majoring in anthropology and in Paul sci. I was going to get a double major in political science and anthropology, which is really far away from my creative writing degree that I got after taking one English class. Um, but I have used, particularly the anthropology, I have used that a lot um, in researching, and I've used the political science background that I have in um, in writing the politics of different worlds. And I minored in speech and theater as well, Mayor, and I have to say I found the characterization stuff I learned there absolutely invaluable. We're like magpies, kind of. We, we pick yes. what's going to help our writing. Um, and it's very common. I mean, Liz Hand, um, Elizabeth Hand, she did anthropology, too, I think, didn't she? I think she did. I think you're right. Yeah, and I think you can tell when you read her stuff. Yes. You're like, oh, yes, you know your stuff, Liz. Um, she really does. Yeah, she's, she's a cool lady. Uh, what I, I will say, though, that I like about the MFA program is being exposed to all of these different writers, uh, both amongst the faculty and amongst your peers, because we do all of the workshops. Um, and it was really cool for me, Amy, to read S.W.O.R.D., because when we've workshopped together, um, just luck of the draw, I have only ever seen contemporary YA from you. And I had to think <laughs> oh, about yeah. this, but I have only seen YA pieces set in our world. And they're awesome, yep. but this is very different. Um, it's such like, it's a secondary world, and it's so grounded and well-developed. So I was just wondering, uh, how did you set about creating it? Ah, well... Um... Weirdly enough, Sword was just about, I mean, besides one halfway done trunk novel, Sword was the first book I ever wrote that I got all the way through, so I had no idea what I was doing. When I started out, I had 
three characters and an issue, and that's what I wanted to write about. Um, and the more I got into it, the more I realized that I was missing some really major things, like, oh, I don't know how much a sword weighs and what the command structure of a medieval army is, medieval army is, and I don't know how fast a person can travel by horse or by foot. So I uh, stopped about three chapters in when I realized I had no idea what I was talking about. And I spent about four weeks doing intense research on all of these things. And the answers I got basically shaped my fictional kingdom, Lardon. I figured out from that how old it was going to be, how complicated its history was. That prophecy at the beginning of the book mm-hmm. actually came right from a bunch of old medieval poems that I'd read. Um, and it, from that, I figured out how much of my history the characters would actually know about and how much physical space the kingdom took up. I drew maps, I built glossaries, I researched the construction of castles in the 12th century, I actually went to England to learn more about them, and I basically turned into an even bigger geek than I already was. Okay, so you're talking to a history geek, so I want to know more about this research. Like, what were you looking at? Archives? Primary sources? Tell me all of the things. I was looking at as many primary sources as I could. Um, I started with the Book of Kells just because that was coming from a no-history background whatsoever. That was the first book I could think of where I was like, oh, that was a really old book. Um, and from there, I start, I got on a couple different history forums, which I would have to look the names of, of now. That was like seven years ago. Um, and I started getting advice from people on how to, um, how to research sword fighting and the weight of medieval armor and medieval army structure and that sort of thing. So I got a lot of advice from different people. Um, and then I went and I started looking at, um, I love looking at these, oh, what's the name of that channel? There's this channel where you can look at, um, it's basically LARPing, but these people are very serious about the, uh, the army, the armor that they're wearing and the weaponry that they're using. Like they're using as close to the original as they can. And then they go through the process of showing what the footwork looks like. Oh, that's super cool. I've seen people do that, oh, but like for Civil War, it's, um, ah, reenactors. Yes. Yes. Yep, it was it was fantastic. It really it was such a big help because I mean obviously this is you know this is an experience that no modern person has really had unless they get into this sort of this sort of study. Um, so you know learning how how long it's possible to hold up a sword when you're fighting, um, how you know how can you how can you fight someone off when you're on a horse, that sort of thing. It's really it's very complicated stuff. Um, so yeah, and then I went to England, um, that, it wasn't actually just for the book, which would be awesome if it was, then I could use it as a text right off, but not so much. Um, and, uh, and we went to, uh, Tintagel, and a whole bunch of, um, older castles, like, uh, well, not older, I'm sorry, other castles, uh, like Pendennis, um, all around the, uh, Cornish coast, and uh, just so that I could get a sense of what a bailey really looked like, for example, um, you know, and what their what their defenses really look like. Even even in the ruins, you can really tell. And it was just it was totally fascinating. So is your castle modeled on anyone in particular? Or are you just amalgamating all of these different structures? Um, Feiston was modeled off an old English castle. Um, actually, it's pretty close to St. Michael's Mount. If St. Michael's Mount was about a thousand years older than it is. Cool. Um, but, uh, the, uh, the stronghold in the mountains doesn't really, I, that one, I just kind of, I just smushed a bunch of stuff together. So, <laughs> well, it's not my time period. As we all know, I'm very much 19th century, but I never got enraged. So good job. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Yes. Cause you are an expert in history. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. Um, 
but I will get enraged by things. Um, and I did not. So I, yeah, it was, I, I loved your world. Oh, good. Well, see, I thought that the world was very realistic because I'm, I'm a history buff, not to the extent that Katie is obviously, but, um, someone who's always loved history and, and loved reading about it and, and, to me, doing research is just like, oh, darn, I have to go do research. What a shame. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know. I have to read some old books and diaries. Shucks. It's terrible. Darn. <laughs> so, but I, I loved all those details about the castles and the details about the, um, the actual sword play that she had to go through. Oh, good. Good. That, See, I, I thought that was, that was a little... Sorry, keep going. I'm just no. Okay. Th- that was I thought that was fascinating. How so? I mean, you really had the sense because so often um, in 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 a lot of books, in magic books, in in any kind of book, the training, the the, the what comes before, how they develop, often gets um, kind of glossed over, and it's like. Oh, here I've got all these magical powers, and three minutes later, oh wow, I can control it's like them too. Like a 1980s Yay. montage. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and 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 the and they didn't hear. They had to work for every little thing, and I loved that. I'm so glad that came through because I have to admit, you know, I think every writer feels that temptation to do the montage, like, all right, let's move past all this hard work and get to the good See, stuff, you know. I have the tiger, um, and then it's done. <laughs> Yes, yes. yes. I, I am having flashbacks to high school right now because my track coach made us listen to that song every time we worked out. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, yeah, so. but I was totally reading it going, wait, does Amy do martial arts? <laughs> I wish I did. Um, well, you seem I like just, the kind of person who would. Um, I would love just to. Just throwing that out there. One day, if I actually can get in better shape and, you know, make tons of money on this book, which would be awesome, obviously. Um, I'm, I want to take lessons in um, in sword fighting. I think that would be a lot of fun. So. so, guys, all buy Amy's book so that she can learn how to sword fight. Yes! Maybe that'll be my next Kickstarter campaign. Yeah! <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> um, this actually reminds I don't know if you guys have read any... I think I've gone on about her forever, Katie. You're probably used to hearing about C.J. Cherry. Yeah. She's one of my... She's, she's awesome. You can go on about she's her. She's fantastic. Have you read The Paladin? It's one of her earlier works. No, but I feel but like... But she spends like two-thirds of the book going over the training, and it is amazing. I mean, you, you would think it would get boring, but she... I mean, you could tell that she got sick of those training montages <laughs> that just happened really fast. And so she focused the whole book on the experience of the training, and then just the last third was about what the main character did with that training, and it was really good. So I kind of, I use that as a model. Not, not obviously not to the extent that she did, but I, that was one of my models for writing about Kylie's experience and training. So. Yeah, when you're, when you're taking a look at something, it's okay, how did this author do it? What yes. can I steal? It's time for Myth Print, Tips and Tricks of the Industry. It's time for another one of our special segments. Myth Print includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. Amy, what would you consider is the most important tip for someone who wants to write in the epic fantasy genre? Hmm, well, you could do what I did and just buy a sword and run around in the streets challenging people to battle. Did you actually? <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of wish I had. You just um, tell people that you did. Yes, I think it makes it, that would be the best origin story I could possibly come up with. Um, 
Less exciting, but also less likely to get you arrested. You could just read a lot of epic fantasy, which is I did. I started reading epic fantasy probably around second grade when I was writing my action-adventure slash romance type thing for Poor Brian and Charity. Um, and I, I read them over and over and over again. And when I was, I think, 12, I started making lists in these books of what I thought was the best thing about them and what I thought didn't work. Um, and then I started trying to imitate them in high school. I think a lot of writers go through that stage where you try to imitate the voice of one of your favorite authors. Um, and I must have done that with, I'm going to go with an embarrassing like eight or nine authors. <laughs> Good job, I'm mean, organized and self-aware. Yes. I didn't know it was fan fiction, but that is in essence what I was doing. Um, we didn't know what fan fiction was in Maine in the 90s. So, <laughs> um, And then I learned to read my stuff aloud um, and basically just practice until I couldn't stand it anymore. And, you know, you come out of it a little strange and a little like a hermit, and carpal tunnel's a real possibility, but you learn a lot. So, read. Read, read, read. That's awesome. I'd actually like to know a little bit more about your writing process. Okay. Well. (laughs) Well, I know it's a big one. Maybe we can focus focus maybe on what you especially enjoy about it. Um, I love to outline. I love it. I I geek out, like just like a crazy person. It's really, it's kind of embarrassing. I, I used, I write so many more outline pieces than I actually use that I don't really know why I do it. I think it's actually some weird form of procrastination that I'm doing. Kind of like, you know, when you're researching and you just keep going, even though you can start. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, um, I start with like a back jacket blurb, you know, like the three paragraphs that you see on the back of the book. Mm. And I find that really focuses down the story for me. And then I write your average 10-page synopsis, chapter by chapter. (laughs) And then I start doing uh, spreadsheets. So I have a spreadsheet that lists out uh, chapter by chapter what each chapter is about, and then I break it down into scenes. And then this is where it gets embarrassing. Then I assign each scene uh, two different numbers. One is for its relevance to the plot, 1 through 10, 10 being it's totally relevant, it's the most important moment in the book, and 1 being, eh, I just put it in there because it sounded interesting. Um, And then another number based on the emotional arc of the story. Uh, Again, 10 is the most intense, and 1 is, I really don't know why it's in there. And then I do line graphs, and I try to get it close to that, you know, that interesting, um, I don't know if you guys have seen that basic chart, like this is the chart that your book should look like Mm -hmm. thing. I try to get it kind of close to that. It's never really going to be that close. And my books, honestly, kind of, they get spiky all over the place. But I do all of that before I even start writing. So I'm a nerd. And it's going to stand you in very good stead. My God. (laughs) Wow. That is awesome. I don't think I've ever met a writer who's, like, so conscious about the tools that they're using and why they're doing what they're doing. That is so cool. (laughs) I've met one, Tim Powers. When we interviewed, he was our very first interview on this show. And Amy, you're reminding me of his process because he's he has notes and charts and all this stuff, too. And it's just incredible. And he does not. He might vary from it a little bit, but he doesn't. Whereas I'll be in the middle of something and I'll go, oh, I didn't know that happened and run with it. <laughs> no <Nope. laughs> I kind of do that, too, sadly, after all of my outlining. I'm like, no, but this works way better, and I'll just kind of go in that direction for a while. But it's nice to have that map because it always, when I forget what I'm doing, I can always look back at it. Um, And, yeah, after I do all of that, I basically just 
my forehead against the keyboard like Don Music from Sesame Street until I have a first draft. That's me. So what's the most challenging part of your process for you? Hmm. You know that whole middle of the book thing? Uh-huh. <laughs> Basically that part there. That. <laughs> kind of from chapter six to, I'm going to go with chapter 20. My books tend to fall into the 25 chapter range. I don't know why, but they all do. Um, and uh, I, I feel really confident about beginnings. And when I start a book, I already know how, how I want it to end. At least I know how I want the ending to feel. Some of the physical, you know, elements of it might change, but I already know what I want the ending to look like. And I, I know what I want it to do to readers. And I know how I, I want to feel about it. But finding my way in the middle, for some reason, that seems to be where my brain just kind of wants to put everything on pause and percolate for a little while. And that part has always been a big challenge for me. Does anything help in getting past that? A couple things. Wine being the first. Um, okay. But uh, mostly I have, I've had to, you know, over the course of, I think I've written four books now. Um, two of which will never see the light of day. I know that. Um, but uh, I've, One of those I've two mostly... better not be one of the ones we workshop this past <laughs> semester. Just saying, I want them both. I don't know which one you're talking about. But... Either. No, uh, the urban keep fantasy going. might never see the light of day, sadly. But I don't know. It depends. It needs a lot of work. I'll be quiet. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, that made me feel really good. Um, but, uh, but no, I've learned that I, there is a point where, I mean, you know, there, everybody talks about the butt and chair uh, mentality of things. And that is totally true. You have to just push through it a lot of the time. And I use ride or die for that. And that is terrifyingly accurate. And it really works very well. Um, but, uh, but there is a point, particularly like dead center of the book where I really do have to give myself just a two week break. Um, I hope to God I'm never on a serious deadline because I'm probably still going to need that two week break. Cause there's just, there's a lot of stuff going on in the back of my mind that I'm not a hundred percent aware of at the time. And that is, it's, it's stuff that ends up being really relevant to the home stretch of the book. But if I force it, then it doesn't come out the right way. So I do need to take that two-week break just to let things percolate. And usually I sit there and rewatch Buffy the Vampire Slayer over and over again because I just love Joss Whedon's plotting. Um, and that brings me out of it. That and wine. Yeah. You're working in that yeah. break. I like it. Yes. This is the best thing about being a writer. You can watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer and call it research. True. You and, can. And you can also call the wine research, technically. That's because right. what if your character is going to drink some wine? You need to know what it's about. Why do you think I got into beer? Uh, this is true. <laughs> We've had discussions about that often late at night in Maine. <laughs> yes. Um, now, among our discussions, you can see I've got actually got a very slick segue here. Um, I love talking shop with you because it's kind of nice to have someone else that's gone through the whole publishing thing. Um and we often talk about some of the changes that we've seen in the publishing industry mm -hmm. just over the last few years. Uh, so do you feel the changes have impacted your work? And if so, in what ways? Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, I'm going to try to keep this to a short answer. Because <laughs> okay. I could go on forever, as you probably remember very well from some of our nights. Not stuff. really. I had a lot of beer. <laughs> so let's hear it all now. <laughs> oh, that was honest. I love it. <laughs> so I can basically just repeat everything I've said, and you wouldn't even know. This is awesome. I have some vague um, memories, but, you know. Well, again, I'll, I'll be quiet. <laughs> um, so the medium length answer is uh, absolutely all of these changes have really impacted my work. Or, I mean, more accurately, they've impacted my experience of trying to get my work to readers. I don't know if they've impacted the way I write so much. I did, at one point, I did try writing to market just because the market was changing so fast that you get that sense that maybe if you can get on top of it, 
and ride that wave that you'll be one of those lucky ones. Um, and I gave up on that pretty quickly. And uh, the result was actually Weave, that, that book you saw a piece of in workshop one of this last residency. Um, yeah. But uh, the first time I put Sword out there was years ago, and it was actually an adult epic fantasy at the time. Um, and I had an agent at the time. Uh, and when we went on sub, we went on sub about two weeks before Black October happened. I don't know if you guys, I'm pretty sure you both know what Black October is. Um, I don't know if you want me to explain it, though. Sure. Um, so Black October was, I think it was 2009 when, um, the publishing industry kind of, that was when everything changed all at once. Um, a lot of, uh, booksellers' borders were still around at the time, so yes, this was quite a while ago. Um, they had, uh, bought a lot of stock, and then they returned it all at once because the economy tanked. And they put a bunch of publishers out of business. I mean, a lot of people lost their jobs. At least one major imprint went under almost overnight. Um, a lot of agents left their, their business, a lot of editors either moved or they left their jobs, and suddenly nobody was buying anything because they didn't dare to. Um, so we were on sub, my agent and I, basically in the middle of that, which means there was no chance that anybody was going to buy the book. Um, so that kind of changed everything. And uh, I had to really think about what I wanted the book to be about and what I was willing to change about it and what I wanted out of my writing career. Because... All of a sudden, a writing career was a very different thing. Um, so I, uh, I kind of stepped back. My agent and I parted ways, I think, about a year later. Um, I wrote a couple other books just to see if I could write something else. And then I rewrote Sword entirely to be a YA crossover fantasy. I started from scratch, basically, and I rewrote the whole book. And then I decided to go it on my own because my thinking was that a smaller or mid-sized independent press might have the flexibility that I was looking for and be able to ride that wave. Because obviously the changes in publishing are still happening. It hasn't stopped yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I was right, but it was a really long journey. Um, so how, so that's do my, that, hmm? how do you feel about all of that at the end of it? Like, do you, you think know, there's a lot of, it was good? Or? I think, I mean... I don't think I'd be where I am right now if it hadn't happened. I, you know, I, I'm sorry that it did happen, and I'm sorry that it was such a huge change that it wasn't possible for traditional publishing to adjust fast enough to keep up with it. But I think some of the changes that have happened are for the better. There's a lot of confusion out there, and publishing is obviously still finding its footing in all of this. Um, but I think some of the changes definitely are for the better, like small and micro presses, self-publishing. These are now valid avenues for getting a book out there, um, and they really weren't before. Now, if you've got a book that might not fit within a larger publisher's catalog, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good book. It just means that they couldn't find any place to put it. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, more ways to get books to readers is always going to be a good thing. I mean, there are also obviously a lot more ways for scammers to con writers now, and even when it is a legit, a legit option, authors can be totally unprepared for what they're getting into, um, especially, you know, with all these new options out there, because they are a lot more work. So more than ever, I'd say it's important to be informed about what you choose and kind of what kind of work is going to go into it. But I think I think it's going in a good direction. That's the end of my answer. I just have a quick follow-up question, though. Sure. Before we go on to our next segment. Um, so if you are, say, a new author looking at this vast smorgasbord... Of options. Um, what are some resources to at least get yourself a little bit better informed? Well, let's see. Uh, predators and editors. It depends on what you're going for. I mean, this mm -hmm. is it's, it could be a really broad answer just because, I mean, if you want an agent, 
you have to know why you want an agent. You know, an agent can either make your career much better. You know, an agent can open doors that you probably couldn't get through otherwise. There are a lot of publishers who still won't accept an unsolicited manuscript. And if you want to be published by one of them, you're going to need an agent. You want to be picky about the agent you get because some of them will help your career a lot. And some of them might end up getting in the way of it. They might just not be the right fit for you. Um, so if you're looking for an agent, sites like Predators and Editors, Agent Query, um, let's see, Query Tracker is another one. That's a good way to go for that. Predators and Editors is actually really good for looking at publishers as well. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're not, they're not having a hard time keeping up with small presses and micro presses just because there are so many of them and they come and go so quickly. But they are really good at putting accurate information out there. They're good enough that they get sued on a pretty regular basis, which is, in my opinion, the mark of a good information source. I think so. <laughs> I, I can keep going. I don't know if you want me to, though. <laughs> Maybe just one, one more for our, our poor fledglings out there. Uh, like, oh, dear God. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, Absolute Rights Beware's and Background Checks Forum is oh, actually a pretty good resource too. Yeah. 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 They. Um. I mean, you have to filter through the answers. You don't want to take it as gospel. The same way you don't want to take any one source as gospel most of the time. That's like watercolor um, talk, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you'll get a lot of people out there who you know are talking about the experiences they've had with a particular publisher or a particular editor or a particular agent, and you know you'll you'll get the you know, the, the raw information. And, you know, sometimes you'll get it from people who are really angry. Sometimes you'll get it from people who are really happy. Sometimes you'll get it from people who are basically just um, paid advertising in one way or another. But if, you, if you're if you willing to go do the work and sort through it, you can get a lot of good information there that will point you in other directions so you can start verifying things, um, which is depending, I mean, if you if you don't want to go it on your own, or even if you do, you know, if you're using a self-publishing platform, they're, they also talk about them as well, um, and it's, it's always a good place to start for research, and it'll point you in other directions where you can start verifying things. Fabulous answer. Thank you. And that's where I met Amy, so yay. That's right. So even more fabulous. The Myth Nomer is... Well, now it's time for Myth Nomer, our word or phrase for today, for the day, and today's word is sword. Yay. Amy, what are some tips for writing fight and or battle scenes that you can offer our listeners. Oh gosh, I think that ability to an- my ability to answer that with any authority depends on how people feel about well, my Well, you fooled me into thinking you took martial arts, so awesome. there you go. Okay. All right, I lie well. That's great. Um, well, for me, I mean, the most important thing was to keep in mind when you're when you're writing a fight scene, you need to keep in mind what matters to you about that moment. I mean, is it just, is it a moment about flashy sword technique and cinematic action sequences? Are we just, are we supposed to see how awesome your main character is in that moment? Or is there more to it? Is it about, you know, what threatens your character, what she learns or what she fails to learn from that moment, what it tells us about her state of mind and how it changes her? I tend to lean towards the latter, as, as I'm sure you both noticed, characterization is kind of my thing. And I sometimes, I'll go, I'll go in that direction, even at the expense of the plot on some occasions, but I also do like some good old-fashioned physical action, so I tried to find a balance there. Um, So as I said before, you know, I did a lot of research about sword fighting, and I particularly found that um, watching watching things, you know, watching people who were doing it was really helpful, um, just because you could see the choreography of it, and you could see how much effort they had to put into some things that you wouldn't have thought would be hard, and how much easier some things that you would have thought would be really hard 
were for some people. Um, you could see what it was like to see someone smaller fight someone who was larger, which was a big deal for me, obviously, because Kylie is, um, you know, she's a big girl, but she's still, you know, she's outweighed and outreached by a lot of the people that she's fighting. So she had to learn a whole different sword style to make up for that. And I kind of relied on physics there. I mean, you know, there's obviously there's directions that you could, you know, angle a sword that would shed the the force of someone else's blow. Um, and so I did tend to focus on the choreography of that because I do feel it's important when your main character is smaller to make it clear how they are, how they're prevailing. But again, as I said, for the most part, what was really important to me about these fight scenes was how she felt and how she came out of them and what it told us about her state of mind. Fantastic. And I think that's why they resonated with us so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Right. That makes me really happy. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, just to go in a slightly different direction now, uh, Amy, my friend, if you could have a dinner party with any seven people, living, dead, or fictional, who would you include? And yes, I keep count. That is my job. Oh, I think you'd better, because that's really, that's, I have all the choices in the world. Wow. You do, like, literally anyone. They don't even I'm have so to tempted to just, like, put Jonathan Franzen and Jennifer Weiner across the table and watch her mop the floor with him. You can um, do that. It's your party. <laughs> That should be like our coffee break right there. Jonathan Franzen and Jennifer Weiner. Um, but, okay, so for dinner, let's see. Off the top of my head, I'm going to go with Mae West, because she's amazing, was amazing. Uh, Virginia Woolf, because who wouldn't want her at a dinner table? Jane Yolen, I think I would love to sit down with Jane Yolen. Frederick Douglass, because he was a total badass. And then, let's see, for we have fictional three people. three left. Three, okay. Sherlock Holmes, who is still one of my favorite fictional characters ever. Severus Snape, just because he would be so fantastically snarky. And then I'm going to say her name. I'm probably going to butcher her name, and I'm going to feel awful about this. But Liang Hongyu, who was a Chinese general and the wife of a Chinese general from the Song Dynasty, which I think was the 12th century. And she is famous for coming up with a whole new technique for... Um, communication during battle, and also for fighting and being a total badass at a time when it wasn't often that you saw a woman fight and be a total badass. So I would love to sit down with her. And I think that's seven. Is that seven? That is seven. Okay. That's, that's a great party, Amy. That's an awesome party. <laughs> and possibly a violent one. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be great. What question do you never get asked in interviews that you really wish someone would ask you? And what would your answer be? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Um, well, this question. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has ever asked me this question. <laughs> See, I guess, well, if I was going to try to look awesome, it would be, have you ever walked in a minefield? And I could say yes. Um, but that's kind of a cheap. That is a valid answer if you want. I think it's a valid that. answer. Okay, we'll just go with that. Okay. Amy, have you ever walked in a minefield? Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, okay, so everyone has their own personal myths, um, including walking in a minefield, uh, as we now know. Uh, things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true. Their own personal myth behaviors, if you will. Uh, so, Amy, what myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? It is absolutely not true that I am a crime-fighting superhero. And it's people, just not true. I know a lot of people think that. <laughs> 
I did. They do. They I do. did. And then the magic was ruined. Thanks, Amy. I'm sorry to disillusion you. <laughs> That's fine. Whatever. I'll get over but it. But I hung up my cape years ago. Whatever. I'll get over it. Um, okay. So, do, do you have another answer, or should I just continue? No, you should probably keep going. That's, okay. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, so what myth behavior do people believe about you that is true? Besides, you know, breaking people's hearts and disillusioning them. Which is, it's one of my pride and joys, that one, I have to agree. It is true. Um, yes, continue. Probably that I could drink a bottle of wine in a night if I really wanted to. Sadly, that is true. I don't do it often, but I can. Um, and more seriously, I suppose, um, that that the endings of my books do make me cry. None of my family wanted to believe that wasn't true. And I had to agree, it kind of is. Okay, what can you tell us about your next projects? Where do you go from here? Um, well, aside from also working on my third semester project for Stone Coast, which is definitely something that's going to take up the whole semester, um, I am I need to clean up the draft of song. As I mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, I do have a first draft. It's just that it's a, it's a couple years old. And so I need to go back, and it's possible I need to rewrite it from scratch, which... That's fine. I can usually do a rewrite in about six weeks, so that would be good if I could just find six weeks of time. Um, but I pretty much have to go back and uh, and start doing my crazy outline spreadsheets on song and then get that into shape so that I can get that out there to the world in about a year. Hooray! Yay! You get your MFA and then have another book out. Seems like a, yes. seems like a good deal to me, man. <laughs> it's going to be a crazy two years. Well, but I'm looking forward well, to right? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking ahead at the next years myself going, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready we... for song and crown both. I got you. I want you to know I'm ready for oh, both good. of them. Like, All so right. Like, you need to drop call. everything else and just write. <laughs> Forget Stone Coast. Who's your mentor this semester? It's Dora, isn't it? It's what? Is your mentor Dora? I uh, know my mentor was Dora last semester and this semester it is Nancy. Nancy, sorry. No project for you. That's right. Books to write. Yep, priorities. <laughs> we has them. Well, sad to say it's come to the end of our show. Amy, thank you so very, very much for finally coming on the podcast. <laughs> it's awesome. Just, it's been awesome to have you here. Well, thank you so it. much for having me. I got her. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to be here with us tonight, Amy. I so love talking to you again. I've missed you. I have missed you, too. I can't believe that we have to wait until July to see each other again. I know. Madness. You just need to come up to Toronto where it's minus 40. Wow, that sounds tempting. <laughs> I know, right? Yes. Um, but at least we don't, at least I have power, unlike That's Orville. true. That's so true. That. I might not in another 15 minutes. Who knows? So. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on, and I can't wait to see you in July. Uh, so, everyone, uh, remember that you can go to mythbehaven.com for more information on Amy Bai, along with links to her books. You can also read her bio and find links to her various and sundry social media platforms. Don't forget that you can download this episode on iTunes or listen right on the MythBehaving.com website. Uh, please take a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes if you don't mind. And you can subscribe to us right on iTunes. So thank you for tuning in to MythBehaving and we'll see you next time. I'm Katie. And I'm Mare. And we are MythBehaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon. This episode is copyright 2015 by Mythbehaving Productions in association with Wireless Adventures and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.